Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This is Jeremy McFarland for the Footballers Family Podcast. The history of the NFL is marked by great moments, moments that make people famous, moments that make cities celebrate, and moments that make franchises into dynasties. In the history of the NFL, you will find moments when people, players, and coaches come together to either form a great union or form a division in the organization, causing it to not to go anywhere. Sometimes they could do both. Today, we talk to Jack Gilden, the author of the book Collision of Wills, Johnny Unitas, Don Shula, and the Rise of the Modern NFL. In this interview, we talk about this book, we talk about Johnny Unitas and Don Shula, and how the Mayflower Moving Company is viewed in Baltimore today. Thank you for joining us on the Footballers Family Podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts on the Sports History Network. While you're at it, message me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore McFarlane if you would like to be interviewed about what makes football family to you. And we are back to Football is Family, the podcast that talks about why football is family to each one of us. And I have a special guest today that I would like for him to introduce to himself. I'm Jack Gilden. I'm an author from Baltimore, Maryland, and I wrote the book Collision of Wills, Johnny Unitas, Don Shula, and the Rise of the Modern NFL. Now, now, Mr. Jack, before we get any further, I, I'm, I'm just having some problems with the idea of Baltimore right now because uh, of how they treated my Titans in 2000. I hold a very long grudge. I, was I, can, I can overcome that right now just for this, just for this time. I was in Nashville. I was in Nashville for that game. Yeah, and that, let me tell you, I love the city of Nashville, one of my favorite cities in the whole country, just based on that visit. And the people were the nicest fans I ever met in the NFL were, were in Nashville. That's the one thing I found out about people in, in my home state and in Nashville specifically. It, uh, they're very nice people, and if you get a couple of beers in them, they'd be really nice. They were super nice people, and they were really smart football fans, and they – they love the game without being obnoxious. That's that's always a plus, and and we're hoping that we'll figure out who uh, tried to destroy part of our city. We hope we we'll figure out that pretty soon. I sure hope so. I hate I hate that hearing that kind of thing. Uh, I watched the video of the explosion, and and that guy it wasn't an accident. He knew exactly what he was doing. But you know, let's let's talk about some um, more positive things. How about that? So okay. I finished your book. And one thing that I want to point out is I didn't know – I thought I knew a little bit about uh, football history, but I didn't know a lot of the background that John Unitas and Don Shula, that he coached Unitas. I didn't know that. Yeah. A lot of people, a lot of younger people don't, don't remember it. They only think of Shula as the Dolphins head coach. I think what's even more interesting is that is that uh, and the people don't know, and even really uh, uh, very 
astute football, you know, followers who are like the history of the game don't remember that they were teammates. That's the really interesting thing, I I think. That is, uh, and and it uh, Shula played defensive back and Correct. wasn't all that good. He was okay, but the game was changing. It, I think what was beginning to happen was is that the best athletes were starting to come over to football instead of baseball for for whatever reason. And Shula, when he came into the NFL, it, he was okay for that time. But very quickly, better athletes were starting to come in. So, for instance, on the Colts, he had a guy like Lenny Moore. I mean, yes. Shula did not have the speed to cover a guy like Lenny Moore. He didn't have the speed to cover a guy like Raymond Berry, let alone – let alone Lenny Moore. And that was the real, that was his real problem. He was the quarterback of the defense, super smart. He called all the plays. And so what he would do is he would call plays for a situation that would make him look good. So he would call a play where he knew he would have certain help if he needed it, things like that, you know. So he he understood what his limitations were. And through through good positioning, he did the best he could, but he just was – it was very apparent that he didn't have it athletically anymore for that league. Well, what was funny about, about what you're saying there is in the book you mentioned that Unitas basically bristled at Shula calling the play, that Unitas thought that Shula should call the defense while he called the offense. Why, why is that the case? Because Johnny Yu was the canniest play caller in football. His whole reputation was built in that 58 championship game where he was calling plays on the fly. And he was, uh, you, you know, if you've ever heard Sam Huff, the Giants middle linebacker, talk about it, it, it he, they thought he was reading his mind. So, like, I think the year before or two years before, I think they played the the Browns maybe in the championship game or no, maybe it was the week earlier or something. They played the Browns and they could easily read Paul, Paul Brown's tendencies. You know, it was like, it was like uh, the giants knew everything Paul Brown was going to do before he did it. But with, with Unitas, they were totally perplexed. It was like he was thinking, you know, in three dimensions way beyond what those guys were capable of responding to. And they didn't know, you know, they didn't know how to cope with it. So, so much of Unitas' reputation, and I think I mentioned this in the book, was the cerebral side of him. Everybody talked about, you know, you looked at him with his shirt off in the locker room and he had no pectoral muscles, you know, he had no, no biceps. He was an unimpressive specimen, but what he was was smart. You know, when, even when he died, all the, you know, many decades later in the New York Times, the headline was, uh, Baltimore's genius of the huddle dies. That's what he was looked upon as, as like a genius in that context. And so when Shula came in and all of a sudden was questioning his play calls and not only questioning it, but usurping his, his power, you know, to, to make the, to call the plays, it was, uh, it did not go over well. I can imagine because both of them, uh, I didn't realize this about Shula either. Both of them are very, I wouldn't say arrogant. Shula seemed to be arrogant. Uh, uh, United seemed to be more confident than anything. Uh, and both of them thought that they knew what they were supposed to be doing. Well, Shula was very arrogant. And I know it to be true because Shula himself <laughs> admitted that to me. Uh, and then the other people around them, even people that loved him, 
They said he was very arrogant in his Baltimore days. Unitas, though, I think you're a little wrong about him. He was very arrogant. Okay. <laughs> very okay. arrogant, just like Shula. But I think that Unitas is – the rest of his personality really made up for it. He was super competitive like Shula was and arrogant. When I say arrogant, I don't necessarily mean it in, in a derogative way. But he thought he knew what was best. I mean, his daughter described him as a guy. I was like, well, what was the, the problem with him and Shula? She was like, well, she said, let me put it to you this way. He, he would say something like, I'm Johnny Unitas. What's he going to teach me about being a quarterback? Which, on the one hand, he really had a point. But on the other hand, he was the player. Some of his teammates, you know, I said to the, asked a couple of them, was Johnny Unitas coachable? They said, for Weeb Eubank, very coachable. For Shula, not at all coachable. So, in other words, he didn't want to hear anything. Now, that is actually – We didn't want to hear what Shula had to say. That actually is pretty funny. Now, Shula and Unitas were very close in age. Could that be part of it? I think that's a big part of it. They were only like two years apart or something like that. And not only that, but like I said, they started off as teammates. And the one guy, you know, he became the biggest superstar in the game probably the biggest superstar to this day that the game has ever known. Shula was on the decline. That decline was pointed out by Unitas in practice every day. Not that he was saying it, but he was demonstrating it every day. He and Raymond Barry were lining up across from Shula in practice every day and lighting him up. Then in, in 1950, in, what was it, in 1957, Shula was cut from the Colts. And he goes to the Washington Redskins. They pick him up, and he plays for them. And the Colts play the Redskins that, that year. And the Colts go down there to, to, uh, to face him. And Unitas and Barry, they know exactly what he can and can't do. They're lined up against him. I mean, think about this. In today's easier NFL with the relaxed rules, how many receivers ever have 250 yards receiving in a single game? In today's NFL, with Dan Marino or with uh, you know Mahomes or with uh, who else is great? Tom Brady, that, that rarely ever happens. But Raymond Barry had 250 yards receiving that <laughs> day, 1957, against Shula. I said, I said, Coach, wh- what happened there? I said, uh, I said, how did that happen? He said, Well, I knew how good they were. And he said, uh, so before they got there, I vowed. I said, uh, I'm not going to let them get any long gainers over my head. So I said, so, so what happened? He said, they completed quite a few right in front of me, he said. <laughs> <laughs> and so he had 250 yards and two touchdowns, and they won the game. Well, that's where you come from years looking back and saying, you know what, maybe I could have done something different then. And that's something that, that, that I appreciate about a man who could say, you know what, I made a mistake and I probably should have done something different. Well, I mean, I don't know about if he felt that way as a player. I think he just knew he didn't have it. I think as a, as a coach, he did feel that way. Like he's, he said that to me. So in dealing with Unitas in particular, he said, look, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I made a lot of mistakes in dealing with him. And he said, uh, he said, uh, I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the right way of communicating with him. I, I think he knew. He, he was like, you know, I just, I was young and I didn't really have everything thought out about my, my manner like I should have. Well, do you think that Shula learned, since apparently you have talked with him before he passed, obviously, to make this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that Shula learned from his time with Unitas and that helped him with his time with Marino? 
Well, I don't think he got along so great with Marino, but I never really looked into it. You know, like I don't have any real inside information of that, but that's just my recollection. I think what it really helped him with was was with Bob Greasy. Bob Greasy, yeah. Yeah. So, for instance, it seemed to me that, that you know, all the personnel was there when he got there, basically, that won the titles. So – he got there, and the the Dolphins seemed to be built very much in the um, in the mold of the Green Bay Packers. Weirdly enough, so Shula had this red hot rivalry with Lombardi and with the Packers in the '60s. That Colts Packers rivalry in the '60s was unbelievable, and it was the greatest rivalry in the history of football, I think. So, but the Dolphins, you know, were built more in the, in the spirit of the Packers than, than the Colts. And so he got in there and, you know, they had that devastating running game with a Mr. Inside, which was Zonka and a Mr. Outside, which was Kick and Morris. And, um, and, and just like Vince Lombardi, he had, he had uh, Jim Taylor and he had Paul Horning Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Lombardi had Bart Starr, who was very underrated very, very good quarterback, super accurate. And that was greasy. He was not flashy, but when the defenses couldn't cope with that running game, he was deadly accurate. He was a very good quarterback and very accurate. So, um, so I think that, uh, you know, that when he went to Miami, you got to remember like greasy was very young, had never had any success. The team had never had any success. So, Greasy was very much on board with listening to everything Shula was telling him to do. And, you know, by the time uh, Shula came to Baltimore, United had already won two championships and was widely acclaimed the greatest player in the history of the league, even though he's still in his 20s, you know. So it was a very different situation. But I think that uh, that he had learned from the Colts. And uh, I think what he learned was that he liked players that were more you know, that he could mold better than ones that were already made. Well, he seems, it's, it's okay. It's, it's all right. It, you know, that's part of what makes this uh, podcast fun for me is the, uh, the, the, the outside noise too. My daughter comes in here every now and then and talks to me while I'm on. So it, it happens. Um, but you had two, and obviously the name collision wills deals with two strong natured men, alpha, right. alpha men who were, one was rising and one was up there and the book kind of shows the decline of Johnny Unitas, not due so much age, but health reasons, uh, beat up pretty bad. And, uh, I didn't realize just, uh, just how beat up he was until, you know, I knew he hurt a lot, but I didn't realize that he almost lost feeling in his arm. Tommy John's type. Yeah. Well, that was toward the end, but, What's really interesting is that he was beat up all along, all through the entire career. Like, you know, if you recall from that chapter in the book, in the 58 season, he had a punctured lung, broken rib and a punctured lung. And then he came back to finish out the season and obviously have the historic game. In 59, he was the only quarterback on their entire roster. They went through the entire season with one quarterback on the roster and the, um, the backup quarterback was a defensive back named Andy Nelson, who's still alive and owns a barbecue store uh, about five minutes from where I'm talking to you from. So, uh, you know, they tended to see him as indestructible, but 
I mean, he had, you know, he played through broken fingers, broken, I think even maybe he had broken vertebrae he was playing with. I mean, just crazy well, stuff. The story of the, of the things, broken nose. Well, sorry. One of the things that you said, I believe he was playing the Bears where he basically was bent over backwards. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and and I can't imagine what that's like to have basically, you're not supposed to bend with your spine that way. It's not supposed to happen. Well, Tom Maddy talked about it. He said, you know, people talk about bounties now and it's a big, it's a big scandal if, you know, if, if they find out that the team had a bounty on a quarterback. He said the Bears used to take up a collection in, in the uh, locker room before the game. And, and you know, who, was, who could knock Unitas, you know, excuse my language, knock his ass out of the game, you know, so – I mean, that was that was the NFL then. It was a brutal sport. Go back sometime and look at the tape of Night Train Lane and and the guy that uh that you know the guy on the Bears that really uh, tormented Unitas was Doug Atkins. Yes, he, University of Tennessee. Well, yeah, and he was from Tennessee also, and and uh, I think he was, wasn't he, or was he from Arkansas or Tennessee? I. Uh, you know what? I only know he's from the University of Tennessee. That's about as far as I could go. <laughs> I mean, I think he was like from some kind of like mountain environment, something crazy, you know? That doesn't surprise he, me. I mean, Bill Curry discussed uh, when he was on the Packers and they were getting ready to play against him, you know, and he was an offensive lineman. And one of the veteran linemen says to him, whatever you do, don't make Doug Atkins mad. You know, if, if you happen to knock him down, help him back up and, and say, I'm sorry about that, Mr. Atkins. <laughs> and he said, he said, at first I thought he was kidding around. I was like, yeah, yeah, right. He said, I'm not joking with you. He said, if you make him mad, first he'll kill you and then he'll come and kill me. He said, so whatever you do, don't make him mad. I mean, th they played against him very, very tough players. I think there's a tendency today that people think that those players weren't as good of athletes as the players that play today, but I t would totally disagree. They were great, great athletes, and they were incredibly tough. Now, you were talking about Bill Curry. Uh, he played both for the Packers and the Colts. Right. And he said that he was about 240 pounds, and he was an offensive lineman. Yeah. I mean, going head to head with Dick Butkus and yeah, Ray good luck. good luck with that. That to me, watching Dick Butkus, watching some of his film, he looks like he doesn't have any moves, and all of a sudden he's in the backfield. Yeah, super fast and super mean. I mean, you, you said you were watching his films. I mean, did you notice how he like tried to twist them human beings in half? Uh, I like how he would take the – he would head it from the middle linebacker position, run straight at the offensive line, and basically pick them up and move them. He didn't bowl over them. He picked them up and moved them. Yeah. He didn't want to have anything to do with them. He didn't care about them. He just wanted to get that ball carrier. But one of the things about this book that I didn't see coming uh, was how you used uh, both the Vietnam War – and the civil rights movement, civil rights movement, I should say, mm -hmm. in in uh, the latter parts of the book, and uh, you know, we kind of think of of the NFL in a bubble, but we see with COVID this year, it definitely isn't in a bubble. But in the '60s, and you started, and I cannot think of the guy's name off the top of my head, but I did look up his books. Um, you started with the JFK administration and a writer who came from Harvard who worked for the National 
National Banner, and then went up to New York Times and was embedded in Vietnam. I cannot think of his name right off the top of my head. His name is David Halberstam. Yes, and uh, hit the book I'm looking at getting that book as well. One of them talking about the the Kennedy administration. But you talked about what's that? Best, the best and the brightest is the right, name of right, book. right, and how? Yeah, and I was like, how how are you taking a writer for the New York Times and then applying it to Cassius Clay? But you do it in a way that takes about two chapters that. When you look at when you look at Johnny Unitas, and then you take a look at somebody like um, Joe Namath, and you see two different cultures, and that is how you did it. And I think you did it wonderfully. Where you took you didn't take sides. You just said this is the way it is. You have the establishment, and then you have the counterculture, and it was that way in the NFL as well. Yeah. I mean, I love that what you said to me, by the way, just now, when you said you don't take sides, because there's one thing I hate is reading a book and feeling like that the author has an agenda. Well, I'm talking about a nonfiction book. So for me, I never come into it with an agenda, no matter what my personal prejudices are. I never bring that to the table because I think it's dishonest. So instead, what I try to do is to to gather evidence on the things that I'm interested in and then go where the evidence takes me. So I don't, I, and then I try to kind of show both sides of the story anyway, you know, so I do analyze, but my analysis is based on what I learn, not on the prejudices, not on the prejudice I bring with me to the table when I start. So you, you did that. Um, when I was listening to it, listening to it, reading it as well, I started saying, all right, where are you going to go with this? Where you, well, I like where you went with it. Um, and I appreciate that because to me, uh, when I read a history book and this is a history book, it's a sports book, but it's a history book. Uh, I want the facts. If I want opinion, I can find other books about that, but I like how you use that because what you were doing is also, you were tying it in, at least the way I saw it to, to the AFL. Yeah. The AFL definitely had that counterculture revolution type feel to it. I was trying to kind of show like how the football was a metaphor for what happened in Vietnam. Like so Super Bowl three, you know, the Colts were kind of like the United States and, and the Jets were kind of like Vietnam, you know, the North Vietnamese. It was like, uh, it was like, uh, you know, the, it, it, and not to trivialize a, a horrible war and lots of people got, you know, killed or terribly injured and, 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 you know, and, and the, the, the goals of it were murky, but what I was trying to say is, so I'm not trying to trivialize it, but what I was trying to show was, is how, it, you know, the, the, the reality and the game were imitating each other in a weird way. And um, I mean, football had become so important in our culture by that time that football coaches were considered for the top of both tickets in 1968. Now, that to me was hilarious to hear it because I I heard something about Vince Lombardi being considered for vice president in 1968 for the Democratic. I didn't know about Bear Bryant. Well, I don't think anybody was seriously considering him, but at the convention, he got votes for both president and vice president. Well, if you want to carry Alabama... Go ahead and put Bear Bryant, but the other SEC schools would probably, or states would probably say, no, no, he's beaten us too many times. We don't need him as vice president. 
Well, I guess it kind of represented the schism, too, in the Democratic Party, which was at that time, part of it was very liberal and part of it was very George Wallace, shall we say, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. It was splitting apart based on race. And, you know, so I guess what I was just trying to show is, you know, think, go back to the title of the book, Collision of Wills. So I was trying to broadly interpret that in these stories that that people could, you know, appreciate these stories of conflict between men. So in the end, I, I kind of saw Unitas and Shula as as kind of a metaphor for the entire society was at was at loggerheads. The young and the old didn't distrusted each other. The the uh, black people and white people. Uh, Jews and Gentiles, even in the book, I showed, you know, a kind of a, a, a break that people don't think about from the old days, but, but Protestant and Catholic people w- yep. was, was, uh, uh, were very mistrustful of each other at that t- time as well and, and factored into the book. What, what you, and, and you, you did uh, talk a lot about Unitas' religion, which was neat to see that. I didn't, I didn't know that part about him. But one thing is, and I want to get a little personal with you, and I want to tell you something. We uh, a few years ago, my my wife and I adopted a a little uh, a Latina, and and uh, both my wife and I are I'm I'm Scottish origin. My wife's German, so we're very very white. Just that's the way it is. Right. And we're trying to teach her the background of her Latina, being a Latina, and. See, reading what you said in this in these books, you know, you, you have to see it from different perspectives in life in order to understand people. And we want her to see her name's Harmony. We want her to see, you know what you have. Your parents are not the same color as you. But we are people and we want we have the same goals. We have the same life and we want to to love you just as well as you were biologically ours. For for Johnny Unitas and and for uh, for that the one thing that I saw in this book is how he was having trouble seeing people like Joe Namath and basically talking about his hair his hairstyle <laughs> and and there was there was that collision of just the older generation to the newer one not only that but the fact that he had a three year four hundred thousand dollar contract that probably made him mad too. Hey, I mean, Unitas was the best player in the league for a decade. And I think, he, you know, I think in 1965, he signed a contract for $70,000, a one-year contract. And Joe Namath never played it down in, in, in the professional ranks. He came in with two bad knees and uh, he signed a contract for 400 some thousand dollars. It went over multiple years. They gave him a beautiful Lincoln Continental and they gave jobs <laughs> to his brothers and, you know, I mean, you can imagine how Johnny Unitas felt. I, I'm sure he, it was enraging to him. Well, I didn't realize that he had signed 10 contracts at that point. Well, I guess, it, yeah, I guess it was 10 contracts. I, uh, what was his first year? Like 56, I think, with the yes. Colts or well, 55 with the Steelers. Well, and, 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 you know, I heard this as well, that what were the Steelers thinking? What, when they let him go? When they let him go, you know. Yeah, they weren't thinking. They didn't, never even gave him an opportunity. He never played in a single preseason game, and they didn't know what he could do. Didn't they See, have Lynn was, Dawson as well? 
they did have Len Dawson as well. They had, they had many other really good quarterbacks that they let go over the years. And that was the thing. Like, if you recall in the beginning when they got Terry Bradshaw, he wasn't very good. Right. And so they didn't like him. They He was the number one pick in the entire draft. And I think that the, the chief, the owner, uh, Art Sr., he was like, look, we're not getting rid of this guy. How many quarterbacks have we given away over the years? And, th- th- you know, several Hall of Famers, including Len Dawson and, and Unitas. So they, they stuck with the Blonde Bomber, and that really worked out well for them. But, y- you know, he, he, it took him several years to really get, get it together. But, but, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the thing about the Colts understanding what was there in Unitas, it's always mythologized. Oh, uh, they got a, a postcard from somebody in Pittsburgh that said, you should see this guy, he's good. And, well, it was baloney. First of all, some people think Unitas himself sent the postcard. And then secondly, they were waiting for him when they got there, uh, when he got there because uh, Unitas's college coach, was friends with Weeb. Eubank was fantastic. He might be the greatest coach in history, as far as I'm concerned. And Weeb was, you know, he had lots of tentacles. So this guy, I, I can't remember his name. He was the head coach at Louisville when Unitas was in college. And he called them up. He said, look, Weeb, don't, don't go to sleep on this Unitas kid. He's coming for a tryout. He said Pittsburgh never gave him a chance. He's really, really good. This, this was uh, Eubank's son-in-law, who was one of his assistant coaches, told me this story. It's a guy named Charlie Winter. He said when he got there, he was like, you could see immediately. He could make all the throws. He would, you know, had a super strong arm. He was smart. And he was, he was a weeb Eubank player, you know. So, so the Colts were a different, you know, light years ahead of the Steelers. Tell me about Bubba Smith. Bubba? Yeah, I mean, he's a very, you know, he's like a, a tall tale. So the Colts had the very first pick in the draft. This was something that Shula had wangled. So the Colts had a, a backup quarterback named Gary Quazzo. And for years, he, he went to the University of Virginia. He was a smart guy and ended up becoming a dentist, followed in his father's footsteps. But for years, he was, uh, they would always talk about how he would be one of the best quarterbacks in the league, except that he was sitting behind Johnny Yu. So finally, you know, he comes to them and he's like, look, I, I want to get out of here. I'm never going to play. I want you to trade me. So they agreed. And so they traded him to the Saints in their first ever year in, in the league. So they trade him to the Saints. And for Gary Quazzo, they get the first pick in the entire draft and Bill Curry. Bill Curry was a great player. He would be just like maybe, you know, just barely not a Hall of Famer. But I don't don't even know why he would not be. Played on so many great teams. He's a starter for, you know, like 10 years or more in the league on, on two of the most historic teams ever. But in any event, they get those two things. So the Colts could, I mean, that draft, I think it was a 67 draft, there were tons of Hall of Famers in that draft. The Colts had the very first pick, and they took Bubba Smith. Bubba was like, you know, like uh, Paul Bunyan or something. It's gigantic. And uh, you know, th- they said when he showed up to college, you, you know, he his father had given him a, his father had given him a car. It was probably given to him by the recruiters. But so he gets out of the car, and the, the head coach sees him, and he sees this gigantic form come out of the car, and he says. Uh, do you drive that thing or do you just uh, carry it around with you? <laughs> <laughs> like some gigantic Buick or something. So, <laughs> he, I mean, he was fantastic. He's not a Hall of Famer, but he could have been. He, he was injured 
you know, too early in his career. He got his knee ripped up in a game where, where they didn't drop the first down marker. So he went into it. It was planted in the ground. It didn't give, and it ripped his knee to oh. shreds. But, he, I mean, Joe Namath highly respected him. His whole goal in Super Bowl three was to run in the opposite direction of Bubba Smith and, and Mike Curtis. Well, apparently he went on to be in uh, police, be in the police academy in a few times. Police academy, yeah. He did all right. He was a really bright guy. He was very smart. He had a great sense of humor. He was a nice guy, and he was a damn good football player. So are you telling me that college players take money under the table? I, I didn't I, know I, that. I, I've, I've heard that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's Michigan State, folks. Michigan State. Couple couple questions, and I'll and I'll, I'll yes. leave you. And I appreciate Mr. Jack for your your time here. Um, a lot of the younger people don't know who Johnny Unitas is, but if you were to take the top five quarterbacks in in NFL history, would you say Johnny is in the top five, at least the top ten, definitely? Oh, I mean, for for me, I would say he's the, he's the best quarterback in the history of the league. I mean, you can, he he was considered that in his own day. Now, you can't say that Dan Marino or Montana or uh, who, Brady or any of those guys, you can't say that they're better than he was because they didn't deal with the, the rules that he dealt with. He was getting beaten up like crazy in a way that these guys, and these are all tough guys. I'm not, I'm not putting down the modern-day players. It's still a brutal sport, but it's just not the same as it was. So... When you look at Johnny U's stats or his lack of this or his lack of that, you just can't say that he lacked in, in any way. I mean, his leadership abilities, his, his accuracy, uh, there's, there's no doubt in my mind. He would be, if, if you had a list of one, he'd be on that list. He'd be the one. He's, he's definitely the best player in the history of the league, not just the best quarterback, but in my opinion, he's definitely the best player in the, in the league. He didn't history. have any fear. No fear at all. And that was one thing that really, I thought that was overstated. But then in talking to uh, his opponents or reading what his opponents said about him, that was the one thing they all stressed. He, he, they, he was not afraid of anybody. They talk about being in the huddle with him, not the huddle, I'm sorry, in the pile up with him after they sacked him, you know, throwing dirt in his face, you know, grinding their fists in his face, whatever. They you know, saying nasty things to him. They said he was just as cu- as cool as could be. He said he wouldn't say anything in retaliation, no matter what they said to him. He they said he would just like Merlin Olson described him, just glaring at him with these, you know, with those piercing eyes, and he would just glare at him. And he, and he said, you know, oh, you know, they were almost sorry they did it because he said we knew he was going to get us sooner. Like they were afraid of him. He was intimidating from his position because they knew that he could undress them eventually and he would pull that game out. And, uh, you know, so they were afraid of him. He was never afraid of them. It's weird to see Johnny Unitas in powder blue in it. No, it's, I mean, look, the, the Chargers are a great organization. You know, they were Sid Gilman's organization and then later Air Coriel, but you're taking the greatest player in history and they humiliated him at the end. And, you know, and sent them out there. They should have never have done that. They did it because they owed him $300,000 on a contract. The owner who signed that deal with him no longer owned the team. And the, instead the Ursay family owned the team. 
they claimed they bought, the, they wanted the Colts because they admired Johnny Unitas so much. But then the first thing they did was try and uh, uh, renege on that contract. They didn't want to pay it. So that was why they got rid of him and they sent, sent them out there. I think in 1972, everybody talks about how washed up he was. That was his last year as a Colt. I, when they benched him in the, in the middle of the season, he was leading the AFC in completions when he got benched. If you can believe that, and, you know, and this is what is, you know, 17th season. He, I mean, he, he good all along. There's a whole lot more stories that we could talk about. Like we view banks and Don Shula at Super Bowl three, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but one, one last thing. Um, sure. When we talk about Shula, uh, you talk about his toughness. He wasn't scared. Uh, what is one story that you can tell us right now that that is probably your favorite story about Shula. About Shula? Oh, excuse me. Unitas. I mean, Unitas. I'm sorry. About, about Unitas. Unitas. Well, I mean, my favorite story in the book about Unitas, I think it made him everybody's hero, was that Bears game. Uh, he, uh, I, get, I can't remember what season it was. Maybe it was 1960. I can't remember. But – I think it was Doug Atkins broke through the line, got past Jim Parker, devastated United. The whole game's on the line. It's late in the fourth quarter with like, I don't know, maybe like 30 seconds left in the game. Sacks them. They, they call timeout. United has blood gushing out of his nose and his mouth. It's coming out of the bridge of his nose. It's coming out of, it's coming out of um, uh, both nostrils. The referee comes in the huddle. He's like, uh, United, you got to leave the game. And he cusses at the referee, tells him to get out of his huddle. So one of the uh, Colts offensive linemen, a guy named Sandusky, reaches down and scoops up a handful of mud from the, uh, from the uh, turf and plugs up Johnny Yu's nose. So the blood and the mud are both running down his face and into his mouth. Parker said he almost vomited right on the field just looking at it. It looks so horrible. So they go to the line. There's 15 seconds left in the game. He fades back. He hits Lenny Moore in the furthest corner of the end zone, the back of the end zone in the corner, puts it on a dime with, a, with a, I think, J.C. Caroline, some great cornerback all over Lenny Moore. Boom, catches it. They win the game. You know, he's, he's ready to pass out, but he, win, he wins the game. That was the quintessential Unitas. That was who he was. Are you a lifelong uh... – citizen of Baltimore or I am. how hard was it in, uh, was it 83 when, when Mayflower took your team? Well, it was after the 83 season. It was actually in, in, uh, like in March of 1984. Well, see, I was a college. Not that you know that for certain, huh? <laughs> not that you don't have that etched in your mind. Oh, of course. Every Baltimorean of a certain age, it's, you know, I, I say, uh, uh, aren't you an ordained minister? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm something. We'll go with that. Okay. Well, all right. I'm sorry. I don't mean to get too personal with you. No, but. no, no. I'm, I'm a, I'm a preacher. I, I don't, I don't like titles, but yeah, I'm just Jeremy. Okay. Well, what I was going to say, what I've said is, you know, that was like, uh, that was like the Romans, like taking, taking the temple to Baltimoreans. It was, wow. I mean, that was, you know, it was like the wall had been breached. This was something that was like the gem of our community. I mean, it was something passed on from fathers to sons. I mean, you know, it was like being a Colts fan was like being Jewish or, or, you know, it was like, it was like a, a true belief of faith that we all had. And it, it was a, a belief in our city and ourselves that, 
you know, like the whole rest of the world looks at us as like underdogs, but but we saw ourselves as crushers, you know, as a David in a world of Goliaths. And then it was all robbed from us. You know, it was like we lost our civilization that day. It was, it was a horrible day. I was at college at the time. I lived right near the complex that, you know, where they, where they were. And I just remember, you know, seeing on television while I was at school, the, the moving vans coming, it was just, it was surreal. It didn't seem like something that could ever, that could ever happen. It would be like moving the harbor out of the city or, Fort McHenry or, you know, something like that was just, it seemed impossible to happen. And then there it was. And then we never had football again for for 13 years. Do uh, do, do the Mayflower Moving Company still exist there in Baltimore? Or was that pretty much it for them? I mean, that was pretty much it for them. I mean, that ruined ruined them. And really, uh, uh, the, the government, the state government, the city government, they should have just put squad cars right in front of the, you know, block the gates, you know, and with, and while they worked it out in court, but they, they didn't, they let them come in and they let them go. And it was an ugly thing to do. It was are very you, ugly. Uh, are you a Colts fan today? No, I'm a Baltimore Colts fan forever. I mean, that's my first team. And I mean, I like the Ravens. I've been a season ticket holder since their first season and they're a worthy successor to the Colts, but nothing could take the Colts. But it'd be like if the Yankees left New York I mean, you know, maybe they'll get another team. I mean, the Mets replaced the Dodgers and the Giants, but not really. You know, if you grew up with the Jets and the Dodgers, I mean, with the uh, the Mets and the Dodgers, I mean, I'm sorry. If you grew up with the Dodgers and the Giants, the Mets could never take the place of those franchises. And the Ravens are a great, great organization, but the Colts had Johnny Unitas. They had Gino Marchetti. They went from, from Weeb Eubank to Don Shula. They went from one guy who might be the greatest coach who ever lived to another guy who might be the greatest coach who ever lived. The Colts were just, they were just more special, I think, than, than almost any other franchise in any, in any other sport. At least they were to us. That's the way we saw them, and it was devastating to lose them. Do you have any cult, uh, Baltimore Colts memorabilia? Yeah, I have a, I have a uh, football signed by all the all the Baltimore Colts that are in the Hall of Fame. I have an old poster of the all-time Colts team. I have uh, not too many things, but I have you know like a little like a little Johnny Unitas uh, statue that somebody had given me as a present. Um, what else? I mean, most you want to know what I mostly have. I have the, I had the ability and the and the gumption I guess to go out and meet the Colts and to you know my my greatest um, uh, artifacts are my memories of spending time with them and talking to them and being in their homes and I slept over Jimmy Orr's house you, you know I mean that's pretty cool that is pretty so cool. Th- th- that's I like that better than memorabilia absolutely well Mr Jack you want to plug your book one more time yes yeah, uh, called Collision of Wills. Johnny Unitas, Don Shula, and the Rise of the Modern NFL. And uh, I've just finished my second book. It's not yet titled, but it'll be coming out probably in 2021. And it's, uh, it's about the racehorse spectacular bid and the untold story behind uh, that horse's victories and especially its crushing defeat in the Belmont Stakes. And uh, I think that your uh, listeners would love that one also. So I'm looking forward to it. But I got to tell you, Jeremy, I love talking to you and and, uh, you're a great guy. I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for coming on. And uh, you got a Twitter account, don't you? Yeah, it's uh, at Jack Gilden. 
And uh, you can also reach out to me on Facebook. And uh, my my website is uh, jackgilden.com. Well, the book is fantastic. And talking with you has been fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to meet you. Have a great evening. Let's get back together. I hope so. Right. I, I look forward to it. And Have a great night. Why, this is why football is family, folks. Thank you all. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.